Welcome back to the Coaching Kernan Podcast. This is our flagship show on our new production network, Real Voices of the Game Production. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined by America's most beloved sports writer, Kevin Kernan. I want to remind our listeners of how to continue to support us before we get into our intro of our guests. Make sure that you're following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Please make certain that you download, listen, like, and subscribe. It really helps our numbers and proves to people out there that we're listened to by the great, uh, great amount of followers we have with almost 9,000 subscribers now in 46 countries, including New Zealand. Our, our special guests will like that. Um, to continue to support what Kevin's doing on the Coach and Kernan Podcast Network or on this particular show, we've set up a site on Patreon. We try to keep it ad-free and sponsorship-free, so it's straight content for you guys. But go on Patreon if you want to continue to see the work that we're doing and provide baseball IQs to everybody out there. Support Kevin on there. A donation goes directly to his show right here, Coaching Kernan. Uh, Kevin, welcome back to the show. I, I, as always, I love the pieces you do with Ball Nine, and we, we, we want to continue to support Chris Vitale and Rocco Constantino, and especially you as you continue to put out great pieces every week. Uh, we'd love to, love to hear your thoughts on especially the one, um, I know you did one recently, but the, the one you did with, about Sabian with his move to the Yankees. I thought that was great. And the reason why I think so, and then I'll let you lead into it in a second, is as we're looking at media nowadays, I often wonder why people are so... I mean, they'll open up to you. You can get anybody on the phone. They'll, they'll talk to you. And I think our, our guest today has a similar quality in that media people out there today are they're glorified PR people for teams and for players. And, and you especially, and then our guest too, you guys are media people that tell the truth. And I think people appreciate that. But um, great pieces again. Uh, love to hear you expound upon some of the work you did over the last yeah, week. Yeah, yeah, love to. Uh... First of all, it's going to be great having Jim on, you know, I've known him forever. And uh, you just, uh, you make a great point. I think people speak to Jim because, uh, and myself, because we're honest and, and we care and we listen. And it's really that simple. Like I called Sabian. I've been meaning to call him after he got hired by the Yankees. I gave it a few days and, you know, it was great to connect again. We hadn't talked in a long time. And, and, and he learned from Bill Livesey. Uh, Stick Michael, you know, he built the original, that did that 96 Yankee core. You know, he drafted most of those guys, the scouting director or whatever. And and very simple, and, and, and we can ask Jim about this too. Uh, I thought the key quote in that whole piece, and people can go to Ball 9 and read it. Um, and by the way, Rocco, I think he's giving a big um, a big speech tomorrow with a book he wrote Um um, I, it's a national archives or something. So yes, yes, yes. It's kind of cool, but um, I, you know, I, we were talking. Saves and I was talking, and we were talking about the importance of having other people that you can trust who who wouldn't be afraid to step on your toes or argue or whatever with you. And he said, "I, I think it's a great quote, and, and we we can go right, right to Jimmy after this." But he said. If I was the smartest guy in the room, I was in the wrong room. And I think there's so many uh, analytic guys today, DMs and the like, who think they're the smartest guys. They surround themselves. Now, don't get me wrong. They surround themselves with smart people. But they don't surround them with people that maybe go the other way on certain things and would would argue it. I remember many discussions with Sabian sitting in an office with Sabian, Bochy, Pat Dobson, um, 
you know, and, and all the scouts there and, and, um, and, and they would, the giants themselves would be discussing situations and arguing about that. And it's almost, you can't have that today. Everybody's got to agree on everything, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, and these front offices today, um, they just don't get it. And I give uh, Cashman credit um, for bringing in Sabian. He's going to listen to him. I thought it was interesting too. He named him executive, not, not senior advisor, executive advisor. And that's a key phrase. So, so getting people and Sabian 66, I think he is. And, uh, you know, he really didn't have much to do with the Giants, even though he had some kind of title. But those Giants people do things their own way. And, you know, he's obviously not going to crush them, but I will. Um, you know, they, 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 and they haven't been anywhere near the playoffs. And don't, one last thing. Sabian and I, uh, I remember telling him in 2010, I said, Sabes, you're going to win three of the next five World Series. And he thought I was crazy. And he said, Kevin, how can you say that? This is before they won the first. And I said, because you guys know what you're doing. You have good baseball people. You have a great manager. And you have Bumgarner coming. You have some other people coming. And here's the most important thing. You guys know how to fill in holes. You can get people. But no sooner than that, he he you know, he, he got a scooter row, which they nicknamed Blockbuster because that was their big big trade piece, you know. So so that's what they did, and that's what teams are missing now, except for one team. I will give credit. I think the Astros are the closest thing to really having a good sound uh, sounding board and dusty and things like that. That's why. So, so we'll leave it at that. Let's get right to Jim. Uh, that's enough of me. Yeah, no, that was great. We, I appreciate that, the insight. The audience loves it. So to our guests now, just to give you a little background on it, uh, tw- across four decades now, uh, our guests – Spent 25 years in the big leagues, debut in August 2nd, 1959 with the Senators. 22 years as a broadcaster. In 2021, inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame, enshrined in 2022. 16 gold gloves, thought of as the best fielding pitcher of all time. I'm giving away who it is a little bit. One World Series, three All-Star appearances, 283 victories, 24-61 strikeouts. I think this next thing I'm most impressed with, and I'm going to let him expound upon it later in the show, but at the age of 75, he scored 75 as a righty and 75 as a lefty in golf. So first person ever to do that. Age of 75, shot 75 righty and lefty in golf. Now playing the guitar, we found out in pre-show. Um, talented wife, former uh, golf pro, current fly fisherman. Author of a book called As Good as Gold with Doug Lyons uh, by Triumph Publishing. All the proceeds, this want to make sure our audience supports this as well. All the proceeds are going to a very rare form of cancer, uh, neuroendocrine cancer. And, um, you know, with our condolences, Jim's daughter succumbed to that as well. So we want to make sure we support that book. Um, without further ado, I want to invite and welcome to the show, the ageless Jim Cott. Jim, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Dave. And uh, it's going to be great visiting with you and Kevin. I think Kevin and I see the, see the game uh, through the same lens these days. And uh, I just want to make a point uh, about what he said about the smartest guy in the room, because as former players, that's probably the one thing that bothers us when I get together with other former players that the analytics guys, okay, they, they think they have good ideas and maybe they do, but they never ask us what our viewpoint is. They always jam what they say down our throat. And that's, that's the best way to do it. I have never had anybody uh, current players or coaches uh, ask me 
how I conditioned my arm, and I, I got it from Warren Spahn, and that's why I was able to pitch as long as I did. But I think that's what bothers us about uh, today's game. I have nothing in common with it really anymore, and that's sad, but uh, the, uh, the propeller heads have taken over. Yeah. I, w- I want to kind of throw a couple names at you early on, and then, then we'll, we'll ease into the, the baseball. And I think we, Kevin and I both agree with what you're saying as well. Um, but play a little bit on some of the work you're doing in another country uh, right now, it's, and, and they seem to be paying attention to it. The two names I want to throw at you, and you, you can expound upon any way you want, uh, Meg Matthews and James Matthews. Oh, yeah. Well, I, five years ago, I spent, uh, we spent two and a half months in uh, New Zealand. Uh, Margie loved it because great fly fishing territory. We had been there once before, and a former minor leaguer, Ryan Flynn, uh, who played a little bit of minor league baseball, started the baseball federation over there. And I saw uh, kids beginning to migrate toward baseball away from rugby and softball. So it was so much fun to uh, to see these kids who, you know, they were just an open book as to uh, how to learn how to play uh, and, and be enthused about what to play. But my first uh, evening in Nelson, New Zealand, watching the pitchers warm up and throw. All of a sudden, I said to Marty uh, Grant, who was the coach, he's a former uh, world-famous fast-pitch softball pitcher. I said, Marty, who is that throwing right there? And this lady walked over to me and said, oh, that's my son, James. Did he do something wrong? And I said, no, he's got the best pitching motion I've seen. James Matthews was nine then, and that was his mother, Meg. And uh, as Dave knows, James is 15 now. He's an excellent student, and he's beginning to look at colleges over here uh, to go to. He's been to camp with Stanford, I think, and Duke. And so that, that's so satisfying. You see, as, as down as I am the way they operate the game, I'll never lose my, you know, my enthusiasm or desire to help young kids that want to play it because I'd love to see James make the big leagues and make $10 million a year, even though I may not watch a lot of games other than the ones he's pitching. I'd watch James too. And, and I was uh, introduced to Jim through Meg Matthews who texted me on WhatsApp and said, there's a gentleman by the name of Jim Cott. I'd like to introduce you to. And I laughed because I said, of course, please. And they sent me a picture of Jim with James and James was sitting on your knee. I think he was that yeah. small. Yeah. To you and uh, they're listening to the show. They're faithful listeners to it. And I, I thought that was a neat story to share to kind of get uh, get us into the mode of baseball. I want to turn over to Kevin. Kevin, I know you got a, you got a bunch of questions you want to uh, entertain Jim with, and I'll kind of turn it over to you to, to get going with it. Well, yeah. First off, we've known each other for so long. Uh, we have mutual friend Jack McKeon, and um, I want to start there simply because. And Jim, congratulations on the Hall of Fame. Well-deserved. Fantastic. Um, it's so nice to see Hall of Famers on every level. I mean, you could have gone in on several levels, broadcast or everything else. And later on, I want to ask you a little about broadcasting. But I know I talked to Jack. Uh, you know, he calls me every once in a while. I called him. We stay in touch. And he was so excited because you invited him uh, up to Cooperstown. And it meant so much to him. So, just uh, go over why why you wanted to make sure Jack McKean was at your induction and, and that relationship. And, and you know, Jack is the youngest uh, 92-year-old we know, of course. Yeah. Well, it was, it was kind of interesting. Uh, I, I said to uh, the Hall of Fame people, I said, I want my, 
minor league manager from the Missoula Timberjacks in 1958 to uh, come to my induction. Uh, I said, he's 91, I'm 84. He was 27, I was 19. He was my playing manager, my catcher. And uh, as I said that day, the Pioneer League was a tough league to pitch in because the cleanup hitter for the Boise Braves was Bob Euchre. Hard to believe. But anyway, uh, the reason I wanted Jack there is uh, to point out how fine the line is between standing on a stage in Cooperstown, being inducted into the Hall of Fame, and being sent home after one more bad start in Class C. So Jack, as Kevin knows, he can sell snowmobiles in Miami Beach. And uh, he comes to me in spring training in 58. He said, kid, I know you have the Class B roster made, but if you come to me in Missoula, Class C, he said, I'll be your catcher. I'll teach you a lot about pitching. So I went to the farm director, and uh, he, he agreed to let me do that. So I go out to Missoula. So you demoted yourself. I demoted myself. And, <laughs> uh, and I got out there, and I started off one and four. And I'm getting hammered, and I'm thinking, what did I do? One more bad start. They're sending me home because uh, I'd already been in class D ball. So Jack could sense that, and he said, kid, you're going to pitch in the big leagues. You're going to pitch for me every four days. You might pitch a little relief in between. We only have seven pitchers in the roster. We have 17-man roster. Well, fast forward to September, I pitched, including the playoffs, 240 innings, uh, led the league in almost every pitching category. And what Jack did for me, which you'd never see happen today, is he said he'd get fired if he managed that day. But he say I had uh, I'm in a jam in the seventh inning with the bases loaded in the close game. He'd trot out near the mound, might spit a little tobacco juice at my shoe, flip me the ball and say, hey, kid, you got into this mess. Figure out a way to get out of it. There you go. There you go. And that's the way I learned how to pitch. It wasn't, uh, hey, it's the third time through the batting order. <laughs> See? So, I, I, you know, I got my ears pinned back a lot. But eventually I learned how to pitch. And I just said and I say to this day and every time, uh, I think I talked to him about a week ago, uh, I continue to thank him for – if I didn't have Jack McKeon supporting me the way he did, uh, I may never have even made it to the big leagues, much less the Hall of Fame. And I, I wish that baseball would use more guys like that, but unfortunately they don't. No, and Jack, um, you can just see how the wheels were turning because the wheels are always turning with Jack. And, you know, he was a numbers guy before numbers were popular, of course. But he, 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 was, he was trying to get his rotation together in spring training, so he saw your potential. Yeah. And, and, and that's key. Uh, you got to be able, you can't just, just teach it, but it's great to be able to see it before it happens. And I think the great ones do that. And, and you've been lucky in your career, uh, Johnny Sane. Uh, you know, Johnny Sane, I know Jack still talks about Johnny Sane as well. And, and Bobby Shantz. So there's two names I'm going to throw at you. Tell, tell everybody about those two people. Well, Bobby Shantz, first of all, was my boyhood idol. Uh, Bobby's 5'6", 135 pounds. He was the AL MVP in 1952. Uh, I could give you all the stats off the tip of my tongue, but the amazing one is that he started 33 games. He completed 27. He came within about 25 innings of completing every start he made, but he was the best fielding pitcher in baseball. And on a Sunday afternoon growing up in Zeeland, Michigan, I could listen to eight games. Uh, every team played a Sunday doubleheader, Cubs, White Sox, Tigers, and then the Braves when they moved to Milwaukee. 
And the Chicago announcer, when Bobby was pitching, would say, and here's Bobby Shantz, best fielding pitcher in baseball, lands on the balls of his feet, always facing the hitter, ready to field the comebacker. And I'd take a tennis ball and my glove, go to my backyard, bounce it off the garage wall, and make believe I was Bobby Shantz. Well, in uh, three years ago, Bobby was, uh, yeah, it's four now. He just turned 97. He was 93. I was 80. And Rawlings had me present a uh, a legacy award to him at the Gold Glove Dinner. And I said, you know, how often does a an 80-year-old get given an award to his boyhood hero who was 93? So that's where Bobby Shantz came into my career. And then Johnny, when Johnny Sane came over uh, as our pitching coach in 65, you know, he was a big believer in throwing every day. And uh, I had gotten a lesson from Warren Spahn, uh, how he conditioned his arm going out to short center field in spring training and picking up a ball and doing a hop step and one hop it into second base. So combined with those two, uh, I just did a lot of throwing every day. And I had veterans saying, kid, you're going to throw your arm out. You throw too much. I said, well, that's how I make my living. You know, as Art Fowler used to say, our pitching coach, why are we running sprints? Jesse Owens never won any games. <laughs> we got to go out and throw. So, you know, Johnny was such a, a positive influence. He, uh, you know, he was a 20-game winner four times, and he probably couldn't black your eye from from 60 feet, and neither could my other favorite pitching coach, Eddie Lopat. And uh, I just owe so much to, to Johnny. And then, as you mentioned, Kevin, he – he was coaching at Richmond when Jack managed there. And even when I see uh, Brian Snitker, he brings up how much Johnny Sane meant to him. So I, I was fortunate to have uh, John influence my career. Yeah, and, and, and you talk about learning, and you never really stopped learning as a pitcher. Was it, What was the deal when you uh, kind of changed the thumb pressure a little bit on, on your releasing the pitch? What, what was that all about? And uh, Well, the, the one thing I, I learned, and that goes, you know, Eddie Lopat had told me, after the 61 season, he was our pitching coach. And he said, kid, uh, you're going to pitch a long time if you don't hurt your arm. And I said, why do you say that? And he said, because you're curious. I see you asking questions all the time. And, of course, today players players don't do that. Uh, so I'm actually – I got to know Whitey pretty well. I won my first game in Yankee Stadium against Whitey in 1960. Then later, post-career – I got to know him socially, you know, and I look back on it and we laugh because in 62, he was pitching against us in Minnesota and we warm up in the bullpens. We're probably about 20 feet apart side by side and I can hear the ball spinning. So I walked, I said, I wonder what Whitey would say if I went over and say, could you show me how you hold your fastball? He could have told me to take a hike. We're competing against each other that day. And it was a hot day. He was wiping his brow. I quick hustled over to the, the cyclone fence. I said, what, do you mind showing me how you hold that fastball? He came over, showed me. said, I put my thumb here, light pressure on the thumb, hold my fingers a particular way. And uh, I started throwing my fastball like that, which had a lot of sinking movement. And for the next 21 years, I threw that fastball with Whitey Ford's grip just because I took the time to ask him about it. That's amazing. Uh, where, where Johnny came in, with his intelligence was when uh, when I got traded or sold really off waivers to the White Sox, he realized that my motion was, it might've worked early in my career, but it was a little slow, a little deliberate. So he's the one that convinced me to go to this kind of a quick pitch 
windup, which I was able to to milk for a few years. And without Johnny, I never would have been able to come with that. But, no, and, and and again, this is a, you know, people go to baseball reference, people go to the baseball encyclopedia back in the day. You're basically the names you're throwing out. And, and, and you know, and I started watching baseball regularly in 1960 when I was 70, uh, when I was seven. And, um, and, and, and you're, you're, you basically lived the baseball encyclopedia, baseball reference that these names, they all came to life for you, including, if I throw it back to Dave, including Dick Allen. Yeah. Your thoughts on Dick Allen and, and that relationship? Well, you know, the sweetest call I got the uh, the Monday after the Hall of Fame results were announced on Sunday evening was from Willa, Ab- uh, Willa Allen, Dick's widow. And uh, when I played with Dick in Chicago, you know, we both, we just bonded so quickly because he learned the game under Jim, Gene Mock. And he learned how to play the game fundamentally right. You know, he was a power hitter, but if there was a man on second, nobody out, he's hitting the ball the other way. So we got along so well. And uh, I wanted so badly if Dick and Tony could have gone in the same year with with me. Tony is Tony Oliva. But I said to Willa, I said, Willa, think about this. I got 12 votes. That's exactly 75%. Of course, We'd never have a president of the United States if you had to get 75% of the votes, but that's what you have to do to the Hall of Fame. Well, Dick got 11. I said, let's just say one of these voters came down to the last vote and said, who am I going to vote for, Jim Cotter, Dick Allen? He could have picked Dick Allen, and I'd be calling you. So that was really sweet of her to call. But Dick, uh, I think Dick's responsible for walk-up music, though he never wanted it. But he was having that MVP year in 72, literally carrying the – White Sox on his shoulders almost upset Oakland for the division. And he came up to bat one day during the middle of a hot streak, and Nancy Faust, the organist, played Jesus Christ Superstar. And he hit the next pitch in the upper deck. <laughs> so every time he came to bat, that started, you know, playing. They played that. But Dick was one of those legendary players. We'd be sitting on the top of the dugout bench in Comiskey Park, and the wind's blowing in. It's kind of a cold night. Guys walk by and say, ah, nobody's going to hit one out of here tonight. And if you remember that famous picture of Dick on the cover of Sports Illustrated with his hard hat smoking a cigarette, he'd look over at me with a wink. He'd get up there with that 42-ounce bat and just drive it right through the wind. You know, He, he could do things like that like, uh, like no other player I played with. He'd find a hole in the wind, right? Yeah, he really would. And... You know, he could run the bases. Uh, This is kind of self-serving, but I'll tell you about one of my favorite wins of my career. I'm hooked up with Nolan Ryan in in Chicago, 74, and uh, Nolan's got a no-hitter going. I gave up a leadoff home run to Frank Robinson in the second inning, but I've given up line drives, singles. We keep turning double plays. I get the last out in the top of the ninth. Uh, and Dick is going to be the second hitter, and we, we uh, no, he's the leadoff hitter. So we trot off the field. He pats me on the backside. He said, "Old timer," that was my nickname because I was the oldest guy on the team. He said, "Old timer, we're going to win this game." He comes up, he hits about a two hopper to Rudy Mioli at third. Rudy, you know, just takes a quick glance at it. Boom! Dick beats it out. We we bunt him over. They make an error. We get a single and a sacrifice fly. We win the game two to one getting two hits. And if Dick doesn't run the ball out like that to lead off the inning, we probably don't even get a hit off Nolan Ryan. So 
Uh, that turned a one to nothing loss into a two to one win just because of the way you hustled down the line. Says it all. Says it all. Go ahead, Dave. Well, I could sit and listen to you two all day. You're beautiful the way you guys talk about the game and go back and forth. But I'm, I'm going to ask this question to both you guys. Uh, Jim, you got to experience the 60s as a player. And Kevin, as you just mentioned, as a, as a young fan, starting to learn about the game, uh, watching it. Uh, the 60s, to me, were the, the golden era of pitching. How would you guys compare the mindset of pitchers from the 60s as to what we see today? Well, I think we were, you know, everybody says that to me as if we were, you know, superhuman when they say, yeah, guys just don't pitch nine innings like you did. I said, you know, it's not their fault. They're trained that way. They're trained by guys basically that know nothing about pitching. They just know numbers like the third time through the batting order. Well, the average is uh, 400. How many guys did he face the third time through the order? Three guys and two of them got hits. Who knows? All that stuff is white noise to me. But they don't train pitchers. In spring training, our goal was over the course of six weeks or, say, a month, we'd go three innings, three innings, five innings, seven innings. And then after that fourth time, we'd go. I would go down to the bullpen, and then when the other team was up, I would go through uh, the batting order, you know, over three innings maybe, not full bore, but I was using my legs like I would – in the game. And Johnny always said, you want to learn how to pitch nine innings. You got to practice hitting 12. Like you want to win the heavyweight title going 15 rounds. You probably trained to go 18. And that's the way we trained. And today, I mean, they count pitches when guys are warming up in the bullpen in spring training, then they go in and ice their arms. So it's the only way they know. And, uh, uh, like I said, learning, learning from uh, Warren Spahn, how to train my arm, but, if I had come up in this era, heaven forbid, I might have been trapped into doing the same thing. But I was fortunate to come up in that era where you got paid on wins. You had to stay in that game and get the win in order to you know, try to get a better contract. And uh, if you had a 5-1 to one lead in the sixth inning and you had to come out, your teammates would look at you like, what? You're going to take that for a win. <laughs> so we were trained differently. And in fairness to today's players, they're capable. I mean, Justin Verlander could pitch 15 innings, but he's not trained to do that. Yeah, I totally agree with everything you say. And, 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 and to buttress it, I know I, I talked to a scout this year, and he was telling me he was a couple minor league games, and he was a former pitcher. And he said um, he was stunned. He, he would see pitchers come out. With a, a, a low pitch count, you know, 70s or something like that, pitching a no-hitter in the minor leagues, out of the game. Yeah. Just, just taken out of the game. Made no sense at all. So how are you ever – and I kind of addressed some of that in my, my latest Ball 9 column, Lifeology, where I'm, I'm talking about learning through life and not technology and, and what they've done to kind of destroy exactly what you were just saying. It's almost like uh, parents now. Parents are a little bit too involved across the board for the most part. Um, teachers I've talked to say it's like, uh, they call them lawnmower parents. They used to be helicopter parents. Now they're lawnmower parents. They ride that uh, lawnmower in front of their kids so there's no adversity. You guys yeah. had to deal with adversity and you had to figure it out. It's really that simple. And yeah. the fact that they don't understand that also goes back, Jim, to the fact that the nerds and the propeller heads that you talk about, they're all pampered souls themselves for the most part. 
Yeah, I, I have fun with it. I know my friend Goose Gossage, you know, he really took off after him. And when when I met Derek Falvey, the head of baseball operations in uh, in Minnesota the Twins, when I first met him, I said, I'd like to meet uh, some of your analytics guys. So he introduced me to him. It was down Fort Myers spring training. There were three of them in this little office, young college kids, probably in their early 20s. And I said, hey, I heard if you put the first pitch in play, the first strike, the league average is 340. So they're hitting the keys, and they said, yeah, that's right. I said, you know, I'm a pitcher. If I can get the first three guys to put the first pitch in play, that means I got two outs because if the batting average is 340, the out average is 660. There you go. And they said, oh, we didn't think of that. I said, well, but I did. <laughs> so you can shoot holes like like war. They're using war for a big stat. So I had done my research, and I understand this is to be true. I used to tell Sam Mealy if I had a – he was my manager in the 60s. If I had a couple rocky outings, I said, Sam, if we have a blowout game, instead of doing my throwing on the side before the game, I'd like to come into the game and see if I can figure something out. So I did that a couple games. One I remember in Chicago, I gave up two home runs to Tommy McCraw, one to Gary Peters. I gave up like five runs in in two innings that I must have gone through the batting order twice. But I figured something out, and I went on to win, I think, my next seven starts in a row. Well, those outings that I decided to go in and give up a lot of runs, that counts against my war. Well, we didn't care. <laughs> Whereas today, a, 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 an agent would say, well, don't do that. I mean, you depend on strikeouts and outs. Don't be going in there, you know, for the good of the team. <laughs> but we did stuff like that, and that, that counts against our war. So all those statistical acronyms, to me, are just white noise. I like a lady that used to keep pitching stats for me since passed away. She's out in Seattle, was out in Seattle. And the, the cover of her little brochure was three up, three down. And it said, baseball is made up of a series of percentages and statistics. And the, the number one statistic is at the end of the game, if my team is one run ahead of the other team, the winning percentage is 100%. And that's all we're interested in. That's exactly no, I think it. you guys are both hitting on baseball is life right now. And we're, we're creating a society of kids that aren't high agency right now. They can't figure stuff out. Uh, they certainly aren't for first principle because they can't have their own thoughts with all the input. And, you know, self-teachers like you were, Jim, teaching yourself, uh, asking questions to learn. I, I've got a question for you on the hitting side of the ball now. Who, who were a couple of hitters that you felt like you just owned and, and why? And then maybe on the other side, who were a couple of hitters that maybe got the best of you and why? Well, the, the ones that Al Kaline was by, by far over a period of time, the four hitters I faced more than any four in my career were Louis Aparicio. I faced him. He was the first hitter I faced. And then Brooks Robinson, Al Kaline, and Carl Yastrzemski. And uh, Brooksy hit a high average, but Kaline did a lot of damage. And the other one was Frank Howard. And then Reggie Smith, he's not in, in the Hall of Fame category, but Reggie just wore me out. He told me after his career he could pick up my pitches from my windup. Uh, and, and I never, <laughs> nobody else did, fortunately. But uh, I guess a story of an experienced pitcher versus a rookie hitter would be uh, my, my success against Reggie Jackson. So we didn't have detailed scouting reports in those days. So Reggie comes up. 
uh, the end of 67, I believe. And he had been at Birmingham. And I got the lineup card, which is all we use. We get in the middle of the clubhouse and spit out the lineup and say, anything you know about, anybody know anything about this guy? And I, so I came to Jackson L, which meant left-hand hitter. I said, anybody know anything about this Jackson kid? And they said, well, we heard he's got pretty good power to the opposite field, which was unusual. You had, I think, McCovey and Stargell were two of the few. And then Strawberry came along, left-hand hitters that had power to the opposite field. Of course, today, anybody can hit it out anywhere, the way the ball flies, and strength of the hitters. So Reggie comes up, and I get him one and two, and I had said to Earl Batty, i got to run the ball in on him. And it got up and in a little too far. My, my fastball, we didn't care about miles per hour. We were interested in movement. And it moved up, it hit the knob of his bat, and he went sprawling to the ground. And then he got up, and I threw him a breaking ball. And it's one of those knee bucklers where I could see him give ground. And he struck out, and I said to Earl, every time Reggie comes up, once sometime during that game, we got to make sure we push him off the plate. There you go. Which is a pitch that's lost in today's game. But so at the end of his career, and he'll admit it now, I think, and I have great respect for the kind of player uh, Reggie was as a young player, played hard, ran, ran fast. But uh, I think he hit a buck 37 and maybe struck out uh, almost half the times I faced him. Now, had I been a rookie pitcher and, and he was a veteran hitter, it might have been turned around, but I was able to take advantage of, uh, of my experience and his lack of experience. Like, and that's what like says I, so much. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, I says so much about – I look at some of today's pitchers, and I'll give you a full name out there, DeGrom. I've always felt that DeGrom doesn't push guys off the plate, and, and not many of them do anymore. So, so uh, they give away a lot of that plate. Now, you, you can see it from both ends because you were an excellent hitter. Um, explain to us, um, you know, that's a lost art. Obviously, it would never happen today because you're not allowed to hit if you're a pitcher. But, how? you know, we all know about the gold gloves as well. But how much hitting, how did that, how did you work on your hitting in, in addition to all the pitching stuff? And, and you're playing in a, a league with 16 teams, you know, 16 teams. So you're going up against great guys every night with the amount of players. And uh, that well, hitting, Johnny, Johnny Sane's philosophy was before the DH, he said, if you can be responsible for one run a game, the opposition has to get two to be ahead of you. So if you can bunt a man over, uh, you get on base. I mean, I, I kid the uh, current Hall of Famers. I think I'm tied for the uh, all-time lead in st stolen base percentage. I'm five for five. I did get picked off first once, which was embarrassing, but – you got to learn to run the bases, but hit, you know, advance the runner, things like that. So, and then uh, because I pinch hit several times, I got to hit with the extra men. So I didn't have a high average, but that was kind of my goal to, to somehow figure in, uh, you know, one run a game. Uh, and what I learned about, uh, about pitching from being a hitter is how, you know, the pitch toward the outside corner is the most difficult pitch to judge. I think if we go back into history, Gil Hodges, who was inducted with the same class I was last year, got to visit for quite a while with his daughter. I believe Gil was a right-hand hitter who was left-eyed. And I remember back in the 50s, the priests in Brooklyn were praying for Gil because he couldn't see the outside pitch. Kept getting called out on strikes. So I could tell from hitting 
you you can recognize a pitch inside and, and one that's way outside, but the one that's over the plate, high or low, you have a tendency to swing at. So I always thought, and I learned it from Johnny and Eddie Lopat, the best waste pitch when it's 0-2 is a pitch that almost bounces on the plate or it's up toward the eyes, but but over the plate. And uh, they now just on 0-2, they might throw it wild someplace. The other, you know, they have no idea what a real true brushback pitch is. But that pitch underneath the armpits to make a hitter move his feet is a big weapon for a pitcher. And they're not allowed to use, they're not allowed to do that anymore. They don't train to do it. And then if they were to throw one or two in there, they get kicked out of the game. Yeah, and I think you would have a great conversation with Glavin about that because Glavin, when he got hit around his first year, he talked to all the hitters and said that, and he he figured out that that low outside corner pitch was the toughest one to uh, hit, and he tried to change his whole philosophy for that, and that and that's how you learn, and and that and I don't think they're allowing people to do that as much anymore, and, and I'm I'm curious too with the pitch with the changes we got next year. Which is only two disengagements per hitter on the mound. How do you think that's going to uh, affect the game um, from, from a you know from a pitching standpoint? Uh, you mean two trips to the mound? No, two, you're only allowed to throw over to first base if it was the runner. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I can I can see what they're trying to do. I mean, there's no sense in throwing over there once. Yeah, exactly. Because once you do it once, the base runner knows well you can't throw over here again, right? Yeah, you can throw over a second time if you throw, you can throw a second time, and okay. you, can just, you can just take off basically. You can get a running start after that. Yeah, yeah. So in other words, you have to make that first. So see, I I was never, I was not, uh, I didn't have a particularly great move like Andy Pettit or Steve Carlton, uh, Terry Mulholland. But what I tried to do is I had a certain spot when I looked at the runner. Granted, I had an advantage, yes, of being a lefty, and Aparicio was one of the few speed threats in the American League. And I can see if he got a certain lead beyond the, where the grass makes a cutout, that was a little too far. So I would step off. And then when, engagement. When, you can only do that once. Yeah, basically. You can only step off once too? Yeah, that's any kind of disengagement. They call anything a disengagement. <laughs> yeah, well, they're, they're getting so many. And I've told Rob this, Rob Manfred. I said, you're getting so many of these ticky-tack rules in there. And I said, if you want to make the game more exciting uh, – Seven inning games, three balls you walk, two strikes you're out. Make the outfield walls about 30 feet high so we can see some doubles and triples and some action, but none of that's ever going to happen because the the one that really struck me uh, was what I heard, I guess it's two years ago now, that a reliever has to face three hitters. Yes. So I walk into the clubhouse where I play golf in uh, Florida, and Tony Petiti, who was in the commissioner's office and is a good friend, He's a member of that club, too. So I walk in, I see Tony. I said, Tony, I just read where a reliever has to face three hitters. I said, that's the stupidest rule I've ever heard of. I said, Whitey Herzog, I mean, that was my job, lefty-lefty. I'd come in to face, say, Joe Morgan or Rick Mundy or somebody like that, and that was it. They don't want me facing Vladimir Guerrero. <laughs> he said, well, don't say too much about it on TV. It was my idea. I said, Tony, you were a college catcher. You should know better than that. But, you know, rules like that, when they start uh, tinkering with the integrity of the game on the field, uh, I don't like them. It's just like analytics. Analytics belong in the front office to evaluate players 
Jim Beatty told me this, who was a, a major league pitcher and then a general manager and then a scout. But they just have to leave the game on the field alone. And if they want it quicker, uh, 100 games a year and, and seven inning games would make sense because, first of all, nobody plays 162. Pitchers don't pitch more than six most of the time. Uh, and I just think it, uh, there weren't, there wouldn't be as many injuries. And I, I think it would be a more attractive game. And after two and a half hours, people start leaving anyway. Yeah, and uh, I know we're uh, we're coming up against it, but it's been such a great conversation. Before I get to my last, or before we get back to Dave, I want to we got to ask about broadcasting. I mean, you you've broadcasted with some of the greatest people uh, around, and, and I'm not asking you to pick your favorite, but just. What, what are some of the, uh, the broadcasting teammates that you've had that really uh, really impressed you beyond? beyond well, beyond. I was so fortunate, again, just like in my playing career, uh, I was doing a, a rain delay interview with Richie Ashburn and Harry Callis, and somebody from the uh, Major League Films was there, and he said, you ought to get into this business when you're done playing. Of course, when you're playing, you think you're going to play forever. Uh, and when the strike hit in 81, uh, Jody Shapiro, who was running home team sports, called and said, would you like to go to uh, Rochester and do a minor league game with Ralph Kiner? We're going to cover the uh, Orioles minor league team. Cal Ripken was a shortstop then. So I worked with Ralph. I worked with Warner Fusell. And I did some network games. Uh, Dick Enberg and Dick Stockton were helpful. And then Bill White, the year I did games with the Yankees, these guys – were so helpful to me. And, and just like in baseball, I would ask them questions. And, you know, they'd say, look, uh, we do the who and what, and you do the how and why. We say, here's Johnny Jones, and he's from Louisville, Kentucky. And then when he, you, you tell us what he's doing on the field and why he's doing it. So that was good advice. And, uh, and then Harry Coyle, the great director with NBC, he said, kid, when the when the game's close in the sixth, seventh inning, I want to know who's in the bullpen, who's on the bench, what's the manager thinking. And if it's a blowout, you just tell me all the stories you want. So, And then I learned from John Madden. And I combined with all of these people, uh, my approach was that I was sitting at the game with, with three other fans, one who might be there for the first game, one's kind of a lukewarm fan, and one is an avid fan. And I like to have something that, each one of those guys can take home and say, oh, I didn't know that, or I learned something about the game. And from John Madden, I learned uh, he, he didn't keep any notes, and I learned not to do that either. I just want to watch the game. Uh, the game's not scripted. You don't know what's going to happen. And I just tried to watch the game and talk about what I saw. Live in the moment. Yeah, exactly. Intuitive with preparation. That's kind of what we're hoping for in our game today. Um, I had one more, Kevin. Did you have another question you wanted to ask? Well, I'm gonna. I'll finish up. You want to finish it? Okay. Yeah, that we always ask, but you go yeah. first. Let me throw this one at. And uh, I'm just gonna throw two things at you, Jim, and, and see if see if you connect them. How did rollerblading and Tony Kubek help you get to the Yankees as a broadcaster? <laughs> well, that's you've done your homework. Yeah, I was working for ESPN. And uh, I was on their Baseball Tonight show. And basically, I was just uh, window dressing because it was a highlight show. And I'd get to chime in once in a while. But, uh, you know, they were paying me good money to do it. But I didn't feel like it was very rewarding. So uh, I wanted to get back to the field. Well, I'm, 
my late wife and I were rollerbladers, and we were out in uh, uh, Madison, Connecticut, on the Middle Middle Ocean Boulevard, I think, rollerblading. And I hear this voice say, uh, they hollered out my name. I thought, who knows I'm here? Well, it was Brian Burns, who at the time was the head of Major League Broadcasting. And he said, Tony Kuba, our MSG, Madison Square Garden Network, is trying to get a hold of you. And I said, why is that? He said, because Tony Kubek is retiring, and he suggested you as a replacement. And so that led me to a call to uh, Mike McCarthy, and uh, Madison Square Garden was like, uh, I think, the best broadcast outfit, uh, you know, that I've, that I worked for. And so that's how that Yankee job uh, came about. Uh, and I should mention another broadcaster there, too, that I've had so much enjoyment with the last 14 years in the MLB network, and that's Bob Costas. Because when uh, when I had stepped away from the game after my uh, wife had passed away in 2008, the MLB network launched in 2009. And uh, I met with Tony, Tony Petiti, called me in to meet, and he said, how many games would you like to do if you work again? And I said, about 10. I was just kidding him. And he said, well, that's all Costas can do. We want to put you two together. So uh, last year was the uh, 14th year that Bob and I did like a dozen or so games together on the MLB network. That's that's fantastic. And, of course, Bob Bob wrote the foreword to your book, Good as Gold, right. Eight Decades in Baseball. And Mike McCarthy, he's with Marquis now, right, in Chicago? Yeah, he started the Cubs uh, network. Yeah, and, and, again, it's all connected – uh, talented people, no talented people, and, uh, and and you did a great job of mentioning all those people that made a difference. For my before my final question, you brought up something when we were just uh, saying hi before the broadcast started about uh, getting your fingers uh, calloused and uh, a flat stone. Uh, please finish that story now, so everybody can hear that one. Well, pitchers always worry about uh, blisters. I never had a blister problem. There again, I go to some of those old school methods and Johnny Sane and his old Arkansas draw were in spring training. He said, Jim, see if you could find a smooth stone in the dirt there somewhere. And then he said, just sit in the dugout and rub those fingertips, the, uh, the middle finger and the index finger, rub it against that stone and you'll build up some nice calluses on your fingertips, which is helping me with my guitar play. <laughs> so, you know, that's what I did. I never, uh, I did that every spring and I never had any blister problems. Imagine if you mentioned that to one of the, uh, one of the, one of the young GMs today, you need to yeah. get a flat they'd stone. Want to, they'd want to lock me up, send me to the funny farm or something. <laughs> well, well, we always end, uh, on this question for everyone on the show and, and take your time with it. And I'm sure you'll have a great answer. It's a simple question, but you answer it any way you want. Uh, and the question is this, what is a, being a ball player, what does that mean to you? Being a ball player, what does that mean to you? Well, I think being a ball player means to me that I fulfilled my childhood dream. Uh, you know, when I was eight years old, I was the littlest kid in my class in terms of sports, and I didn't grow till later. But my dad was such a baseball historian. He drove to Cooperstown 1947 to see Lefty Grove inducted. That was the first baseball name I heard of. But I just, from the time I was a young boy, uh, I just always wanted to be a ball player. I didn't know whether it would be a pitcher, but I just fell in love with that game of baseball. And 
1946 when my dad took me to a doubleheader between the Red Sox and Tigers. Uh, I didn't know how much money players made. I didn't know anything about it. But that's being a ball player, uh, when I look back on it, uh, fulfilled my boyhood dream. And I'd have to say the relationships that I have made through this would be last year was my 66th year in professional baseball as either a player, a coach, or an announcer. And just like with you guys, the uh, the relationships that I've made over that time are so special that that's kind of a byproduct of being a ball player. Well said. Well said. Beautiful. Yeah, Jim, thank you so much for coming on today. Kevin, wonderful job as, as usual. Uh, you bring out the best in our guests and our audience appreciates that. To those 9,000 plus subscribers in 46 countries, grassroots to front offices now, make sure that you download, listen, like, subscribe. We're on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and Stitcher. You can follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Please follow Kevin and our guys at Ball9. Make sure we're supporting them as well. They're kindred spirits. They're brothers in this business. We're trying to do the same thing, so support them. Uh, we, we Again, thank you, Jim, for coming on the show. You're a phenomenal guest. We hope we can get you back sometime to do it. I think we could have you on for, for weeks at a time and, and still not get enough for you. So. It's always, uh, always enjoying, always enjoyable uh, talking baseball with people that really love the game for what it should be. Yeah. And then we appreciate you as well. Good luck with the guitar playing. I can't wait to listen to your first song. I promise you I'll get you that, that app. I, I promise. But, um, we'll get you on the air playing a song. Oh, you'll be our intro music. Great idea, Kevin. Great idea. He's the new intro. But uh, thanks again for coming on. Uh, we appreciate you. This is Coach and Kernan. Um, this is episode 101. And this, this will be um, one of our best without question at all. So thanks again.